You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, in the name of Christ, we plead that you would send your Spirit and that we would know the grace that is in Christ. Communicating something to us of your love as we fellowship in the Spirit now. In Christ we plead this. Amen. Saints, my prayer for you in this message is that you might know something of what you already know, that you might know it. More and more and more. And sinner, my prayer for you is that you might know this same reality, that you too might know it more and more. Saints, before you ever come to think profoundly concerning the Trinity, After your salvation, before you ever give any kind of serious contemplation to God as Trinity, you already have a deep and profound knowledge of the Trinity, experientially. Your salvation is thoroughly Trinitarian. It is completely Trinitarian. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit put you in into union with Christ, such that you then drew near to God as Father. Fred Sanders exclaims, The first step on the way to the heart of the Trinitarian mystery is to recognize that as Christians, we find ourselves already deeply involved in the triune life and need only to reflect rightly on that present reality. 
Most evangelical Christians don't need to be talked into Trinitarian theory. They need to be shown that they are immersed in the Trinitarian reality. We need to see and feel that we are surrounded by the Trinity, compassed about on all sides by the presence and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From eternity past to eternity future, our salvation is thoroughly, completely Trinitarian. But today, I don't want us to dwell upon the vast expanses of eternity from which our salvation flows, springs, and into which it flows. I'm speaking about what you know Speaking about what you've come to know and what you continue to grow in your knowledge of in your regeneration, your justification, your conversion, your adoption, your sanctification, your reading your Bible, your praying, your fellowshipping in the body, your drawing upon the means of grace, your sitting under the word of the word of God preached. You're coming to the table and partaking of the sacraments. Your life, your Christian life, every bit of it is an immersion and a participation in the Trinity. A communion with the Trinity. Experientially, you have a profound knowledge of the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my prayer then is that you would know who you already know. You would know God distinctly as your triune God, that you might know Him distinctly more and more as the triune God. So be gone any idea that the Trinity is some esoteric doctrine, some heady doctrine for the theologian or the scholar. It is a practical doctrine. Philip Hughes, who was a good friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote, In the New Testament, the teaching of a Trinitarian distinction within the Godhead is primarily practical in its impact. It is related to the human situation, for it is within the framework of redemption that it is disclosed to fallen man. And therefore, it is a truth which is confirmed by the knowledge of Of the believer's experience. The Trinity is a practical and experiential doctrine. And you see it here as Paul closes this letter. With this Trinitarian benediction. Longing for them to experientially know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with you all. Be with you. But before we plunge directly into the Trinitarian waters in which we already swim, two preliminary observations gleaned from verses 11 through 13 are in order. First, if we are to have fellowship with the triune God, we must have fellowship with one another. Paul unleashes a Number of rapid fire commands in verses 11 through 13. And the bulk of them have to do with fellowship within the body. 
And following them, there is this, the bulk of them, as they're given in verse 11 alone, you have this promise. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he told them that because of the divisions that they bring to the table, the Lord's Supper is no longer the Lord's Supper. Whatever you're getting from that table, it's not the Lord's Supper anymore. Because there was disunion in the body, there was no communion with God at the table. It's as simple as this. A sin against your brother is a sin against God. And you cannot harbor unrepentant sin against your brother and think you're all right with the Father. You cannot sow discord in the church and expect to reap harmony with heaven. Second, if we're to have fellowship with one another, we must have fellowship with God. Where do I glean that? Two places. First, Paul first says, rejoice. All these commands about unity, fellowship, harmony within the body are preceded and initiated by this command, rejoice, which I take to mean rejoice in the Lord. If you are out of fellowship with one who is truly your brother, I would venture that at some level, somewhere, if you will dig, if you will ponder, reflect, meditate, if you will expose yourself by the light of the word, you will find there is a failure to rejoice in the Lord. There's grumbling somewhere. But second, if that seems rather thin to you, look at the command, comfort one another. And perhaps you'll recall that Paul opened this letter saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you're to comfort your brother, you have to be comforted by God. If there's to be fellowship with your brother, there has to be fellowship with God. If you are to agree with one another, there must be agreement with God. If you're to be restored to your brother, its basis and foundation is that you've been reconciled together by the blood of Christ to the Father. Church is not simply communion with one another. It's communion with one another in God. So if we're to have fellowship with one another, we must be in fellowship with God. So before Paul speaks of communion with God, he speaks of communion in the church. And I want you to see how inseparable the two are so that once again, it's brought down to you just how practical a matter the doctrine of the Trinity is. Communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that Paul goes on to speak of here, which is critical for your joy in God, and thus 
It's critical for your life and fellowship and harmony in the body of Christ. And healthy fellowship within the body is essential for us to enjoy communion with our God. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Turning from our communion within the church to our communion with God. Paul mentions each one of the persons of the Trinity and a distinct kind of communion we're to enjoy with them, a particular blessing we are to enjoy relative to each one of the persons of the Trinity. Specifically, there is grace in the Son, there is love from the Father, and there is fellowship with the Spirit, and these things are not arbitrarily chosen so that they could be interchanged, that He could, he could just flip them any way they want. Now, it's true. We can speak of the love of the Son or of the grace of the Father. That's true. But I want you to see that these are not arbitrarily chosen. They are distinctly chosen for a reason and a purpose. When we go to Jude, we find the same basic distinctions. Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Same distinctions, different author, different letter. Praying in the Holy Spirit being a distinct expression, a particular expression of what fellowship or partnership in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit means. Praying in the Holy Spirit, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Love of God, love of God. Mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a distinct communion we are to enjoy with the distinct persons of the Godhead. John Owen, known as the Prince of the Puritans, wrote the classic on this idea of communion with God as Trinity, which we most know simply titled as Communion with God. But as is so often the case, the full Puritan title is much more elaborate and lets you know something of the whole of the work, so much so that often you feel as if you just read the title, you've got the book. Of communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation, or The saints' fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost unfolded. And Owen argues there, again and again from the Scriptures, that we are to enjoy a distinct communication of grace or a particular blessing or a particular communion with each of the members of each of the persons of the Godhead. He writes, The Father does it by way of original authority, The Son, by way of communicating from a purchased treasury. The Holy Spirit, by the way of immediate efficacy. That will become clear, I hope, as we go on. But in more familiar words, it's pretty much saying this. That all of our blessedness is from the Father, through the Son, in or by the Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. And this is precisely the shape 
of our Trinitarian blessedness and communion that we see again and again in the Scriptures. So, for example, 1 Peter, speaking to those elect exiles, says that they are elect, chapter 1 and verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember Owen said it's, it's from the Father by way of original authority? So the foreknowledge of God the Father, your elect, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Owen said there's an immediate efficacy. The Spirit's dealing with us directly. We're being sanctified in the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. There is this purchased treasury that's in Christ. Or one more, Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and who God is being thought of there in particular is going to be plain in just a minute, but note that he speaks of the loving kindness of God our Savior. When it appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So the loving kindness of our Father saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the Trinitarian shape of our blessedness with God is resplendent throughout the Word. If we would just look for it, if we just had eyes to see it, it's there again and again. But it's right here that this Trinitarian shape of our blessedness and communion with God finds its clearest and most concise expression in the Scriptures. As we turn to Paul's only Trinitarian benediction, we note that he doesn't begin, though, where things begin. Owen said it begins with God as by way of original authority. But Paul begins with Christ. He begins with the Son. Why does he do so? And I believe that the best answer is that Paul is not only experiential in his aim here, be with you all. He's not only experiential in his aim, he's experiential in his ordering. Before you ever know that the work of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit, you may sense God's doing something, but before you know that the work of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit, and before you know anything of the love of God, indeed the means by which the Spirit works in your life, and the way by which you come to understand the love of God is in the proclaiming of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's as Christ is proclaimed that the Spirit begins to work. And it's as Christ is proclaimed that you you then begin to understand something of the love of God. Christ's message to sinners is Christ. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 12 of this letter that he came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul explains that the ministry of the gospel involves the Father giving sight by the Spirit to perceive What we perceive is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Again in 9.13, 10.14, Paul says that his message is the gospel of Christ. And so we begin with the Son. Because it is in the Son that we really come to know our God as Trinity. What was latent and shrouded in shadow throughout the Old Testament. It's there. But it's being there is illuminated by the Son. Jesus is the great revealer of the Trinity. If you want to know the Trinity, if you're, if you're, is the Trinity true? You're looking for text, and there are texts that we can point to that make the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity clear. But if you want to see, if you want, if you want to know and understand the Trinity, don't look for a specific text. God has given you a text. It's called the New Testament. Look to the Son again and again and again, B.B. Warfield wrote. The fundamental proof that God is a Trinity is supplied thus by the fundamental revelation of the Trinity in fact. It's, It's revealed in not by an argument, it's revealed by a fact, an isness. What is this fact? That is to say, in the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. In a word, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are the fundamental proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. So as you turn the pages of your New Testament, again and again, you will see Christ and you will see the Spirit in His working. And the the knowledge of the Trinity just leaps out of it and then illumines all the Old Testament with it that you might commune with your triune God. Don't try to prove the Trinity so much as enjoy and commune with your triune God in His Holy Word, and you will know the reality of the Trinity in your bones. And so this is where we begin. We begin with the Son, but why is it that grace in particular is mentioned concerning the Son? Why is it that particular, particular blessing that we're to enjoy relative to the Son that's held out here? The most common opening and closing blessing of Paul throughout his letters is grace and peace to you, often from both God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's how Paul opened this very letter. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why open it? Focusing on the Son in particular. In regards to grace. And I am certain. That just reflecting. On just hearing. The reading of one text. Will make abundantly plain to you. Why Paul would single out grace. In particular in regards to the son. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, grace which He has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." In Him, all in Him, every spiritual blessing, every grace, every gift in Christ. As Owen elsewhere said, Christ is the great Joseph from whom our every need is met. They continually, I the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes, as the great Joseph, that hath the disposal of all the granaries of the kingdom of heaven committed unto him, as one in whom it hath pleased the Father to gather all things unto a head, that from him all things might be dispersed unto them, dispensed unto them. All treasuries, all fullness, the Spirit not by measure are in him. Or as Owen said, We have this distinct communion with Christ as regards a purchased treasury. There is this treasury of grace in Christ. Saints, how is it that you are meant to distinctly commune with God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? Look to Him as the great Joseph who fulfills every true need. Are you in need of righteousness? Look to Christ, your federal head, who obeyed perfectly in your place. Are you in need of cleansing? Look to His blood that can wash the vilest clean. Are you in need of strength? He supplies the Spirit. Are you in need of wisdom? God has made Him. Wisdom unto us. Sinner, are you in spiritual darkness? He is the light of the world. Are you hungry? He is the bread of life. Do you recognize your deadness today? He is the life. Are you searching for the way? He is the way. Do you want to know truth? He is the truth. Saints, Every spiritual blessing is to be found in the Son. Every one of them. And what we are told in the Scriptures is that the treasury is not locked. It has been flung open to you. It's like a table set before you and you are invited. Come. Come to Jesus. Feast. Feast on Him without reserve. Glut yourself at this table on every grace of God. They are all here. Do you remember Paul's question in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will He not also with Him give us, graciously give us all things? With Christ, all things graciously given to us. And that thought brings us to consider the Father who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How are we to have distinct communion with the Father? And the answer is by communing with Him in His love. All the grace that is ours in Christ is ours in Christ because of the Father's love. It is our deep shame. And it is Satan's brilliant lie that we doubt and wrestle in particular concerning the Father precisely what we should be enjoying and communing with Him in particular. Saints, as you think of the Father, you must think of communing with the Father distinctly. Is it not exactly this very thing that most often you find yourself doubting and worrying? The Father's love should not be so. We should not doubt the Father's love if we are in Christ. We should celebrate it. How blind we must be to miss what the Scriptures so frequently make plain. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do not doubt His love. He's given His Son Every withdrawal that you make from the treasury of Christ is a testimony of the Father's love for you. The cross is not the cause of the Father's love. The cross is the effect of the Father's love. See, that's how our thinking gets skewed too often. We think as if the the Son brought an unwilling Father to love us. No, the Father so loved us. That he gave his son. Thomas Menton wrote. Christ did not merit electing love. But love rather moved God to give Christ for sinners. Love appointed the son to be our redeemer. There was the bosom and bottom cause. The bosom and bottom cause of Christ crucified for sinners. It's the love of God the Father. For those sinners. When you commune with the Son. Finding every spiritual blessing in Him. As you draw upon all that grace. That is in the Son. And you're communing with the Son. Be mindful. That as you are communing with the Son. And drawing that grace. That you thereby. And therein also. Commune with the Father. Knowing. Oh Christ. Thank you for this grace. And oh Father. Thank you for your love that provided this Christ from whom I draw this grace. 
As Owen stated, our distinct communion with the Father views Him as the original authority. Before the foundation of the world, the Father chose you in Christ. He loved you in the Beloved. And if the words Father and authority don't cause you to think love, know it's because your thinking has been clouded and distorted by this world's lies and perversions. And so let the Scriptures now dispel any such notions. Paul, in the fifth chapter of this letter, writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, so you see God there is the Father, God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. All this is from God. It proceeds from Him by way of original authority. So you see this Father and you see His authority. And how does He use that authority? In love, He gives His Son to reconcile us to Himself. You not only have the Son, though, testifying to you of the Father's love, you have the Spirit as well. In his work on the Holy Spirit, Owen wrote, For when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace, he appointed in his wisdom two great means thereof. The one was the giving of his Son for them, and the other was the giving of his Spirit unto them. And hereby was way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. And of course, when the Father gave you the Spirit, He gave you the Spirit out of the treasury of Christ. Listen again to Ephesians 1. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In Him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Saints, it should be easier for you to doubt the heat and light of a clear August day than to doubt the love of God in light of the risen Son and the warm presence of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 and 5-4, Paul also speaks of the Father giving the Spirit as a guarantee. And it is God, the Father, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So yes, the Spirit is, a, is the guarantee of our inheritance, an inheritance that we have because of the Son and the purchased treasury bought by His life and His blood. But as such, the Spirit is an expression to us also of the Father's love. Now, 
How is it then that we have distinct communion with the Holy Spirit? And the distinction seemingly disappears, dissolves into redundancy. Have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Have communion with the Holy Spirit in the communion of the Holy Spirit. But I think you even sense something of the meaning of this whenever Owen was stating that we have fellowship with the Spirit by means of immediate efficacy. When it comes to communion with the Holy Spirit, there is a communion with the Holy Spirit. There's something immediate about it, more about it in a way, at least in proximity. We have communion with the Spirit by means of His immediate efficacy. In the third chapter of this letter, Paul tells the Corinthians, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the Corinthian saints are a letter from Christ, but that letter is written. It's immediately done by the Holy Spirit. There are two striking phrases that Paul uses in his letters that correspond to the two ways this word fellowship could be translated that I think illuminate what this immediate efficacy means. So it can be translated fellowship or partnership. Fellowship first. Ephesians 4.30, here's the phrase. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So in regards to personal fellowship, don't grieve Him. And what's striking is in the context when he says don't grieve Him, surrounding that command, don't grieve, are commands concerning the fellowship within the body of Christ. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in your relationship with Him by being out of fellowship with your brothers in Christ, by slandering them, belittling them, being bitter towards them. But the word fellowship can also have the sense of participation here. And so rather than personal communion, fellowship, the idea would be partnership. The idea would be ministry. And this corresponds to Paul's command to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. So relationally, don't grieve Him. And ministerially, don't quench His work. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. And in both, there's an immediacy to the Spirit's working with us and working through us. But I'm afraid that can all leave you feeling that language, it's good, it's helpful. But it still can perhaps seem to you a bit clinical. I think there's a much clearer way that we can get at as to what it means for us to commune distinctly with the Spirit. And that's to think in Trinitarian terms. What is it that the Spirit ministers to you? Is it not Christ and every spiritual blessing that is in Christ? And as He does so, 
He testifies to you of the Father's love. Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And, And out of what treasury was He given to us? Christ. And as He's given to us, what does He communicate to us? Who does He put us into union with? Christ. The Spirit deals with us immediately. And in ministering to us, what He ministers to us is Christ. This is what it means when He is is spoken of as the Spirit of Christ, the one sent by Christ to minister Christ. So reflect just as I read these passages. See if this is not so. John 16, 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see this immediate efficacy? You see the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? The distinct fellowship is a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Or Ephesians 2.18. For through Him, that's Christ, we both, speaking Jew and Gentile, which brings you back to that idea of fellowship in the body, for through Christ we have access in one Spirit to the Father. So it's in one Spirit. It's in the Holy Spirit. Because of Christ, it's in the Spirit that we have access to the Father. What the Spirit of Christ ministers to us is Christ. And in so doing, He testifies to us of the Father's love. Owen said that the Comforter comforts us with two things. All the consolations, he writes... Of the Holy Ghost consists in His acquainting us with and communicating unto us the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. Nor is there anything in one or the other, but He makes it a matter of consolation to us so that indeed we have our communion with the Father in His love and the Son in His grace by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Or Athanasius put it this way. When we participate in the Spirit, we have the grace of the Word. Word incarnate. We have the grace of the Word. And in the Word, the love of the Father. Oh, blessed Spirit. How sweet is our communion with Him. That He brings to our lips the cup of Christ. And all things in Him. As we feast at the table of our Lord. In the house of our Father's love. That is communion with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who puts you into union with Christ. So that you draw upon Christ every spiritual blessing. As a communication to you of the Father's love. And is this not the wonder of wonders now? That again and again, as we've tried to conceive of communion distinctly with each person of the Trinity. 
that the clearest light as to what it meant to commune with the Son as the Son and the Father as the Father and the Spirit as the Spirit, that the clearest light came when we considered the other persons of the Trinity. Reminds one of Gregory of Nazianzus' famous statement. I cannot think about the one without being instantly surrounded by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being immediately drawn back to the one. So marvel with me at this for just a bit longer as we conclude by plunging into these very depths. When you commune with any one member of the Godhead, you commune with the Trinity altogether. The doctrine of perichoresis or circumincession or coherence. Those are all three very big words to really speak to this reality, which we often refer to with this language, of the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. That whenever you commune with the Son, you have communed with the Father and the Spirit because they are in the Son. This is why Jesus could say, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, John 14.10. But another Deep theological truth that has bearing on this is captured by the Latin phrase opera trinitatis ad extra sunt, meaning that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. They are undivided, undivided. They work together. Stephen Wellham states, thus in creation, providence, and redemption, all three divine persons act inseparably and together, yet they act as Father, as Son, and as Spirit, and specific actions terminate on the divine persons differently. So, it's not the Father or the Spirit who are incarnate. It's not the Father or the Son who are poured out onto the church, you see. There are distinct actions, but yet they act inseparably And together, where one works, the others work. The Father planned our redemption. The Son accomplished our redemption. The Spirit applies our redemption. Our redemption is a triune work, and it's a work done together and in harmony. Or as Manton put it, these make way one for another, or work into each other's hands. One is making way for another, or I like the idea of, What he's doing, he's working into the other person's hands. For what the Father intended, Christ purchased and the Spirit applied. God the Father is as the fountain of grace. Christ Jesus as the conduit or pipe to convey it to us. And the Holy Ghost, the immediate operator and worker of it. But even that, I think, gives you too much an idea of temporal gaps. As though the Father did something, and then the Spirit did something, uh, then the Son did something, and then the Spirit did something. You spread out this work over time. It leads to a kind of modalism. You think God the Father works, and then the Son, and then the Spirit. No. While the Son was offering up His life, the Spirit was strengthening Him, anointing Him in His priestly work. And the Father, at that moment, was both pouring out judgment on His Son as He bore our sins and being pleased by His perfect obedience in offering up His life. They always are working 
together in everything that they do. This is why Jesus would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5.19 So just as the persons are the, of the Trinity are distinct, and yet there's one God, so the works of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, though distinct, are one. And so too is your communion with each of these persons in regard to their works. Whenever you commune distinctly with any one person of the Trinity, you, you commune with them all. So that when you commune with the Son in His grace, you do so drawing on that grace as an expression of the Father's love. And that grace is ministered to you by the Holy Spirit. When you, cons- when you commune distinctly with the Father in His love, The way you know that love is by the purchased treasury of Christ that He gave for you, communicated to you by the Holy Spirit. And as you commune with the Spirit and His fellowship, it is a ministry to you of the Spirit. Out of the treasury of Christ, of the treasury of Christ, is an expression to you of the Father's love. This is the great benediction of our redemption, the chief blessing and the goal of all God's redemptive work. Your redemption flows from the Trinity and it flows into the Trinity. Your redemption flows from the communion of the Trinity, their delight and joy and fellowship with one another. It flows out of the Trinity and it flows out of the communion of the Trinity and it flows into communion with the Trinity. A knowing of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John Owen writes, The end of the dispensation of grace being to glorify the whole Trinity, the order fixed on and appointed wherein this is to be done is by ascending to the Father's love through the work of the Spirit and the blood of the Son. The emanation of divine love to us begins with the Father, is carried on by the Son, and then communicated by the Spirit, the Father designing, the Son purchasing, the Spirit effectually working, which is their order. Or, marvel of marvels, our Lord got at this communion in this way in His prayer on the eve of His crucifixion. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me, The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, nigh in them. Oh, dear God, we pray that you who we know are triune God, we now might by grace and your spirit have come to know more profoundly that we might then know you more and more and more. Enjoying distinctly communion with you as we draw upon the grace you've provided in your son as an expression, Father, of your love that immediately is brought near to us by your spirit. All praise, glory, and honor be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for this high and blessed privilege. There is nothing beyond this. This is the sum and substance of our salvation. This is the climactic blessing of which every other blessing is a ray emanating from, that we would know you, that we would commune with you. The awesome, mysterious, triune God. And so it is, in Christ... By the Spirit, we cry out to you, Father, now, praising you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.